Thank you so much, Chris, for leading us this morning. You still got it, man. I had a hard time not seeing Chris um, with a uh, with a headband and UGG boots playing the keyboard in our youth ministry back in California. But yeah, just get that picture in your mind with him with a headband, and he was he was cool, man. Uh, he was a surfer dude, and. Uh, it's a joy to be able to continue to serve with Chris and, and our other Chris, who this is a good reminder that Chris is leading today, that we need to continue to pray for Chris Delagula, our worship pastor, he and his daughter, and um, the Hinojosas are still in India serving in Goa. They'll be wrapping up uh, in a few days and heading back home, so just continue to pray for their ministry there and their safe re- return and that God will use them to stir us up uh, when they get back about uh, God's kingdom work. Uh, halfway around the world. Well, if you've come to Lakeside uh, for a number of years, you perhaps have noticed that at the beginning of every year, I try to pick a passage and preach a message that would somehow serve as a corporate launch for us as a church as we head into a new year. And the passage that I've been personally meditating on this past week or two, uh, in light of the, the transition between 2023 and 2024, Uh, is Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me this morning. And this is a passage that that has been very meaningful to me uh, for many years, long before I ever uh, went to seminary, long before I ever served as a pastor. Uh, Just as a young college student, um, I found a lot of... um, direction from this passage, a lot of motivation from this passage, and whenever I had an opportunity to teach my peers, uh, this is a passage I would go to and and would try to um, unpack it in a way that would stir us all up to go hard after Christ, and so I thought this would be a good passage for us to return to this morning and just to consider again what Paul had to say to the church in Philippi about uh, pursuing the prize. Um, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Father, we're so grateful for another opportunity to open up your word and to study it together and to be impacted by your spirit um, to um, first and foremost illuminate our minds to understand what this passage means and then how it applies to our lives practically. And so, Lord, I pray you'd use our time together to stir us up, to want to go hard after Christ, not just individually, but corporately Uh, this new year. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is the one thing that you want most in life? Do you have some 
desire or passion or ambition or goal that consumes your thoughts and controls everything you do. And it requires tremendous determination, tremendous hard work. David's all-consuming passion was to live with the Lord. Psalm 27.4 says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Mary's all-consuming passion was to listen to the Lord. You may remember in that context where Martha, her older sister, was scurrying around preparing a meal for Jesus and his disciples. Jesus said this, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary for Mary has chosen the good part or that one thing, and she was doing what? She was sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him. Paul's all-consuming passion was to be like the Lord. And he says it here in verses 13 and 14, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so ever since Christ had chased Paul down and saved him on the road to Damascus, Paul had been chasing Christ with all of his might in order to know him and to become more like him. And I think Paul's relentless pursuit of conformity to Christ in this passage is the final, finest example in the entire Bible that there is more to being a Christian than just the experience of coming to faith in Christ. God's plan of salvation involves far more than simply saving us from death and hell. He saved us to make us like Jesus. Being a Christian is not only about coming to know Christ, it's ultimately about being conformed to the image of Christ. The Christian life is essentially a quest for Christ-likeness. Every one of us as Christians should want to be as much like Christ as possible and work to be as much as, like Christ as possible. To think like Christ and to act like Christ and to talk like Christ and to have the motives of Christ and the thoughts of Christ. And that was Paul's greatest ambition for himself, but not only for himself, this was his ambition for everyone that he led to Christ and he discipled. He said so in many of the letters he wrote to the various churches that he planted, uh, to the churches in, in the Galatian region, he said this, Galatians 4.19, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, like a, like a mother giving birth was how he likened his, his labor for them, that they would be conformed to the image of Christ. Ephesians 4.13, he said this to the church in Ephesus, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Lots of fancy words just to simply talk about being like Jesus. Colossians 1.28, to the church uh, in Colossae, he said, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ, literally perfect in Christ. And Paul's passionate longing to be like Christ, I think explodes here from this passage in Philippians chapter three, like no other place in the scriptures. And he intended that his 
personal pursuit of Christ-likeness would serve as an example for the believers in Philippi, but also for us as an example to follow. Like Paul, we must pursue Christ-likeness with the same kind of drive and discipline of an Olympic athlete. Paul must have been a huge sports fan. In light of all the times that he used sports as an analogy for the Christian life, he would probably be the first guy that would leave church on Sunday and go turn on the football game, right? Big sports fan. He, he liked to use the analogy of a race most of all. Uh, Acts 20, 24, he says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish the course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. He said to the believers in Galatia, Galatians 5, 7, you were running well. Who hindered you? 2 Timothy 4, 7, at the end of his life, he said, I have fought the good fight and I have finished the, what? The race. I've kept the faith. And then probably the most familiar passage about running is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And so again, here in Philippians 3, Paul likened living the Christian life to running a race. And he went from being Paul the accountant in verses 7 through 11 to being Paul the athlete in verses 12 through 16. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, we have to understand the context because we're kind of just parachuting our way down in, landed kind of halfway through the book of Philippians. But in verses 7 through 11, Paul explained his radical reversal of values and passions and goals and hopes that he experienced when God graciously opened up his spiritual eyes to see that all the things he had prided himself in, all the things that he had trusted in to attain a right standing before God amounted to nothing compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ and having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he really provides an appraisal of his past in verses seven through nine. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul had just got done listing in verses two through six, uh, everything that at one time he was counting on to, to earn God's favor. And he renounced all those things, and, and he said they had no value uh, when it comes to earning or attaining salvation. All the things that he once considered assets in his life were actually liabilities because as long as he trusted in them, he could never be saved. But once he got saved, whatever he considered valuable to him before, he saw it as worthless, uh, literally uh, it says uh, rubbish, trash. The, 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 the best translation of that word is, is feces, poop, is what he was saying there. Now, all that stuff, no value to me at all. And the ultimate treasure he received through faith in Christ was the righteousness that God provided him through Christ's life and death, which is what allows us to gain access to the presence of God. So he appraised his past, but then he also uh, expressed his aspiration for the future in verses 10 and 11. Notice he says that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So after explaining his new values, he went on to explain his new passions, his new goals, his new hopes, and his greatest passion, his greatest goal, his greatest hope was to grow as, as, close, to, as close to Christ as possible and to be as much like Christ as possible. And if we want to know Christ and be more like him so that whenever we're around people that they get the sense that they're in the presence of Christ, wouldn't that be a great goal that when people are in your presence, they feel like they're in the presence of Christ. If that is your passion, if that is your desire, then you must, number one, truly come to know Christ in a personal way. Then you need to learn to, to rely on his power, the power of Christ, and then you need to gladly suffer for his sake as you seek to live a, a crucified life while the entire time you long for Christ's return. I think that's the idea, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, talking about when he is resurrected and stands face to face with Jesus. And then in the next set of verses, starting in verse 12, Paul's attitude now is about the present. And so he shares his attitude regarding the present. And everything that Paul says in these verses uh, verses 12 through 16 is about being conformed to Christ. It's about spiritual maturity. And his tone changes from forsaking his own self-effort and trusting in Christ alone for his salvation to following Christ and trying or striving in the strength that Christ provides for his sanctification. We need to make sure we maintain a distinction between the different aspects of salvation. There's justification, there's sanctification, and there's glorification. And, and justification is a, a one-moment-in-time experience when you are set apart unto the Lord and declared righteous before God. That's when you get saved. That's typically a crisis, a crisis moment in your life. God you often uses crises for us to come to know Christ. And sanctification, though, is not a crisis. It's a process. It's an ongoing event in our lives as Christians, and it's a process of becoming more and more like Christ, which ultimately culminates in glorification when we see Jesus for who he, for who he is, right, in all of his glory, and we become like him. And so what I want us to see in this passage here, um, again, this is Paul's explanation and example of pursuing Christ or pursuing the prize. Uh, I want you to see with me six winning attitudes that we must have in order to become as much like Jesus as humanly possible. In other words, in order for us to be conformed to the image of Christ, there are a number of things that we need to know and do. And the first one is we need, we need to realize why we were saved to begin with. We need to realize why we were saved to begin with. Look at verse 12. Paul says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That word lay hold or expression laid hold means to overtake or to seize or to catch or literally to tackle something. So the idea here is, is, is chasing someone down and, and, and tackling them. And I think 
we have another wonderful illustration here of the sovereignty of God in salvation. You remember what Jesus said in John 15, 16, I didn't, you did not choose me, but I, what? Chose you. So God laid hold of Paul before Paul laid hold of God. In other words, Paul was running away from Christ as fast as he could, but Christ chased him down and made a blindside tackle on Paul while he was on his way to arrest Christians on the road to Damascus. And Paul never saw it coming. He didn't think he needed to be saved, and he didn't want to be saved. And yet God graciously and mercifully chose to save Paul and use him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And ever since Paul had experienced that, the, the jarring impact of Christ on that Damascus road, he, he, he'd been seeking to lay hold of Christ. He was desiring to chase after Christ and try to tackle Christ. Most of our kids are in first service, but you may remember as a kid playing tag. One of my favorite games, right? Out at recess, you'd kind of get a, just a game of tag going and somebody would be it and they'd run around try to tag somebody. When they tagged them, you're it. And then you get to chase everybody else around. Well, it's kind of like we're playing, the Christian life's playing tag with Christ. Christ tags us, he saves us, and then we're it and we chase after him and we pursue him. And Paul knew that's why God had saved him in the first place was to become like Christ uh, he said this in a number of places, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another way of saying becoming like Jesus. And then 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says this, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So the reason why God saves us is to make us like his son. So Paul's goal in living reflected God's goal in saving him. And we should live for the same purpose that God saved us, to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Not just to get our get-out-of-hell free card and go on living however we want to live, but to be like Jesus. So remember why you were saved to begin with. Secondly, we need to admit that we still have a long way to go. We need to admit that we still have a long way to go. Again, notice... Back in Philippians chapter three, he says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, this is verse 12, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Now this may have come as a shock to the, to the uh, believers in Philippi to hear that their spiritual hero, this spiritual giant, the apostle Paul, admitting that he hadn't arrived yet. Here was the most committed, most dedicated, 
most devoted, most spiritually mature Christian who ever walked this earth, acknowledging that he had yet to reach spiritual perfection even after walking with Christ for about 30 years now. Now granted, he had grown a ton since the day he was first saved. He had learned a lot of uh, important lessons. He'd been greatly used by God to accomplish many marvelous things and he had won many spiritual battles in his Christian life, but he knew he still wasn't all that God wanted him to be. He wasn't fully conformed to Christ yet. And that's because he knew that it was impossible for anyone to achieve sinless perfection here on this earth. Not even someone like him could arrive at that or achieve a level of spirituality where further growth and maturity and progress and development or sanctification is no longer required. It may have been that the Judaizers that he refers to in verse 2, the, the false circumcision, the dogs, claim to have reached some state of sinless perfection by being circumcised or keeping the Old Testament law. By the way, there are people today who believe that. You know that, right? That they've achieved sinlessness that they no longer sin, they just make mistakes. And in fact, one of the, our, our brethren here was out evangelizing on a college campus recently and he was preaching over here and there was another guy preaching over here and the guy over here was claiming that he was sinless. And the students that were gathered around him began to migrate over to the guy from our church and they're asking him, hey, is that right? Is that possible? Did that guy saying he's, he doesn't sin anymore? And our, our brother was able to open up the scriptures and, and show that that's not true. He's lying. The Bible makes that very clear, right? If, if we say we do not sin, we make God out to be a liar. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. And Paul honestly and humbly confessed his ongoing struggle with remaining sin in his life. We know that from Romans 7, I do the things I don't want to do. Even at the tail end of Paul's life, he still considered him the worst sinner that he knew. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he begins by thanking the Lord for his salvation. He says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. This is a guy who'd been walking with the Lord for many, many years, for decades, and he still considered himself the worst sinner he knew. And so I think Paul's confession here in Philippians 3 that he was still a man in the middle of his own sanctification was evidence of his spiritual maturity. You see, the more mature we are in Christ, the more we realize how much more we need to grow to become like him. We never arrive. And, and there's some frustration along the way because the closer we get to God, the further away we think we are from him and the more sinful we feel at times. And I think that's just the paradoxical, paradoxical nature of sanctification. It seems like we're sinning more even though we're actually sinning less. The reality is we've just become more sensitized to our sin. And things that we didn't even realize were sins or didn't recognize idols in our heart, we do now, right? The closer we get to Christ, the more of that is exposed in our hearts. And so we feel like we're further away than we've ever been. And so I think there should be a, a holy discontent, a, a holy dissatisfaction in all of our lives as Christians that I think is an essential 
element to our spiritual growth and progress in the Christian race. We should never allow ourselves to be satisfied with where we're at spiritually because if we do, we're going to get lazy. We're going to get complacent. And I think this typically happens when we compare ourselves to others who may have not been a Christian as long as we've been or, or haven't progressed like we've progressed. And so we're tempted to become proud and perhaps self-righteous and even apathetic, and we ease up a bit in a race and think, well, we've got, you know, we're way out ahead of the rest of most other people, so we got some time. It's like the tortoise and the hare, right, where the, the, the rabbit took off running and uh, looked back, and the tortoise was just kind of meandering along and thought, man, I got plenty of time, sat down and rested, and uh, woke up from a nap and realized that the tortoise had passed him and won the race. And so... I think the way to avoid becoming complacent and indifferent and proud and self-righteous is to make sure that we compare ourselves not to other people, but to who? To Christ. And as long as we always compare ourselves to Christ rather than others, we will never lose sight of how far we still have to go to become more like him. And so we need to avoid overestimating our spiritual achievements so we don't become smug or, or slack off in the Christian race. On the other hand, those of us who are perfectionists, I don't know who I'm talking about, maybe me, but you, you, you might be a perfectionist as well, but we need to be careful not to get frustrated when we mess up. We need to remember that God's plan is progression, not Perfection. He's looking for direction. Are we going in the right direction? And so we can't allow ourselves to become overly discouraged and, and defeated and get down on ourselves because we aren't perfect. Now, this is not a pass to say, okay, well, you know, I'm never gonna be perfect on this earth, so I got a little leeway here, a little latitude here, and I can indulge my flesh from time to time and just ask for forgiveness is no big deal. No. We need to stay hard after it, pursuing the prize. But for those of you that may struggle with discouragement, struggle with defeat and guilt, I think this often occurs when we choose to dwell on all the times we've failed to live up to God's standards, particularly in the past. And that brings us to the third winning attitude, number three, forget about the past, stay focused on the prize. Forget about the past, stay focused on the prize. Notice verse 13 in the middle of the verse, he says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing. Again, what's your one thing? Paul was a man of singular purpose. He had laser focus when it came to living the Christian life. He was living for what mattered most. His number one priority was to change and grow into the image of Christ. And he wouldn't let anything or anyone distract him from that goal. I think one of the greatest distractions, one of the greatest hindrances to our spiritual growth and maturity is when we keep looking back and living in the past. Notice he says, forgetting what lies behind. I think Paul was referring to not just his failures, but also his successes. 
He abandoned all that he had inherited and all that he achieved. He, he chose not to focus on all the people that he led to Christ and all the churches that he had planted, all the, all the sacrifices that he made, all the sufferings he had earned for the cause of Christ. He didn't dwell on those things. And at the same time, he also forgot his many sins, his pride, his self-righteousness, all the Christians that he had arrested and murdered. I think it would have been very easy for Paul to lay awake at night and be haunted by the sight of Stephen being stoned right in front of him as he held the coats of the men who were stoning him. That must have been a hard thing to forget. And the reality is, there's things that we'll never forget. Right? I mean, there's things that have happened to you uh, you'll never forget. Things that you've done that you'll never forget. But I think we can refuse to dwell on those things or beat ourselves up over those things or live with guilt and shame, which only serves to impede our spiritual progress. I mean, let's be honest. We all have bad memories from the past that we wish we could erase. But we can't. It is what it is but we can choose not to brood over past mistakes and failures and regrets and missed opportunities and let them hamper our walk with Christ and hinder our spiritual growth and maturity. Even God himself says he forgets our sins. Isaiah 43, 25, I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, obviously, God, being omniscient, right, can't forget anything. It's impossible for him to forget anything. But what he's saying in those verses is that he no longer holds those sins against us. They no longer affect our standing with him or influence his attitude towards us. So the point is this. If God moves on from our sin, we can too. Now, let me say this. I think it is appropriate for us to look back at the past at times in order to address unconfessed sins or unreconciled relationships or situations where biblical restitution was, was never made. So yeah, go back to the past and deal with those things, right? But we shouldn't live in the past or go through, go, go through life, like my mom often says, looking in your rearview mirror. Dwelling on past sins and failures and offenses and grudges and tragedies, regrets only slows us down in the race. And it can even paralyze us. It can cripple us so we can't move forward at all. Some of you guys have done some things in your life that you just haven't been able to get past. Things have happened to you that you just can't get past. You, you, you're stuck spiritually. And so you need to hear Paul's words today exhorting you to forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. Listen, if you keep looking back over your shoulder, it's, it's no wonder that you keep stumbling or tripping up in your walk with Christ. Jesus said in Luke 9, 62, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. So he says, I forget what lies behind, and what does he say? 
and reaching forward to what lies ahead. We need to stay focused on all of our, our blessings and, and privileges in Christ and all the good works, all the tasks that God has ordained for us to do for Christ. And so we must keep moving ahead with hope and with confidence. So forget about the past. Stay focused on the prize. Number four, pursue Christ with every fiber of your being. Pursue Christ with every fiber of your being. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul just got done admitting that he couldn't do anything to be reconciled to God by his own self-effort. But now he's no longer in the realm of justification, he's in the realm of sanctification and he's asserting how he was exerting maximum effort in order to resemble Christ to the greatest extent. And that word, press on, uh, the Greeks use that to describe a hunter eagerly pursuing his prey. Those of you guys that are hunters, right, you, you get that when you're tracking uh, an animal. This was an intense endeavor, as one commentator put it. It's a rough and tumble pursuit, sublime violence, pressing on. In fact, Jesus actually said this in Matthew eleven twelve: the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. You're like, what does that mean? Well, I commend to you a book by Thomas Watson, a Puritan, called Heaven Taken by Storm. And the whole point of that book is that there needs to be an aggressiveness and a holy violence that we pursue Christ and we pursue making it to heaven. Heaven taken by storm. Get it. Read it. Paul's using this word here, press on, to describe how he was straining every muscle in his body, kind of like a runner rounding uh, that final corner and coming down that home stretch and reaching forward to be the guy that gets across that finish line first. And after Paul was saved, he pursued being more and more like Christ as violently and as aggressively as he pursued brutalizing more and more Christians before he was saved. And and. This was no time for him to rest on his laurels. He could have felt like, you know what? Hey, I've, I've, I've run the race. I'm good. He never plateaued in his spiritual life. He was constantly climbing and relentlessly running and persistently pursuing the prize. Some of you may feel like you've plateaued, perhaps. Like you're kind of in this kind of this season of just kind of you're stale spiritually and you're just kind of flatlining, right? Well, that may be a reality, but guess what? You're not supposed to stay there. So so get after it, right? By the grace of God, get after it. And and ask the Lord to take you to the next level. And really sanctification is kind of like, you know, it's it's not like, you know, we get saved and all of a sudden we we're made perfect. No. We, we get saved and then sanctification. And sanctification is not like this necessarily. It's kind of like a ski lift, right? You kind of go up and maybe you dip a little bit and then you go up some more and maybe you dip a little bit and then you go up. But guess what? You're, the trajectory is you're going up, right? So you may be in one of those swells, right? In those low points. But hey, guess what? Keep pursuing the prize so that you can continue to go upward. And that's what he says here 
in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When Paul talks about the prize, he typically had in mind, likely had in mind, an athlete who had just won a race, mounting the victory stand, receiving the applause, receiving a prize, and kind of we watch our Olympic athletes, right, and they climb up that three-tiered thing and they get their wreath and uh, their gold medal and they sing along to our national anthem. That's the idea here. And, but it's interesting, Paul never actually told us what the prize is here. But I think in light of the context, we can guess what the prize is. He's talking about why he was laid hold of in the first place was to be like Jesus. In fact, look at verse 20. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So I think the prize that Paul's referring to here is glorification. When we ultimately become like Christ. The Apostle John said it this way, 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So whatever this prize is, we could summarize it as glorification, right? None of us can even begin to comprehend all that that will mean, all that we'll experience in heaven. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, things which eye has seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. We, we have no idea what that's gonna be like. And you can read all the books you want on heaven, and I'm not saying not to read books on heaven, but it's, 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 it's a drop in the bucket. You'll never have a, a fully uh, clear picture of what heaven's gonna be like until you get there. And so I think all we can know is that this prize, this, this, this glorification, becoming like Christ, it just encompasses all the purposes of God in saving us. It, it represents our eternal inheritance as one of God's children that we will be like him, but most importantly, we will be what? With him. We'll be with him. So, Pursue Christ with every fiber of your being. Number five, remember you're not alone in this, you're not in this alone. So remember, you're not in this alone. Look at verse 15. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. So when Paul said that he refers to these people that are perfect. He may have, again, been referring sarcastically to the Judaizers who thought they had attained sinless perfection. It's more likely that he was addressing those in Philippi who were spiritually mature and shared his passionate quest for Christ-likeness. And in fact, those of you that have an ESV, that's how they translate it, mature. They use that word mature instead of perfect. I think it's more clear there. But Paul just assumed that every mature believer would share his passion to be like Christ. I mean, this is the norm for every believer in Paul's mind. And yet he knew that there might be some who didn't share that passion, didn't agree with him, even if they 
even though he wished that everybody did. In fact, uh, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So that's what he was desiring. Nothing more that Paul wanted than for people to keep striving towards this goal. Albeit elusive, it's still our goal. And, but notice what he says here. Let us therefore, as many are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Paul was confident that God would change people's minds and hearts in his way in his time. So instead of trying to force people to see things his way right away, Paul simply entrusted them to God and was willing to patiently wait for the Holy Spirit to change them. Which we could take a chapter from Paul's playbook here and, and take the same approach when people disagree with us, with how we live our lives or how we think they're living their lives or how they should be living their lives. We need to be gracious and give them space and freedom to grow and change at God's pace rather than our pace. But you may have noticed I emphasized the word us when I read verses 15 and 16 because Paul switched from singular to plural. He went from I using I in verses 12 through 14 to, to us in these last two verses. And so I think this is just a reminder that Paul was inviting the Philippians, all the Philippians, and every believer in every generation to join him in this all-out pursuit of Christ-likeness. And he often exhorted others to follow his example. In fact, he does that in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example. In chapter 4, verse 9, he says, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So he wanted for others what he wanted for himself because he knew in order for us to win the race of the Christian life, we need the encouragement of fellow runners. And so he was modeling for us and exhorting us to pursue the prize alongside other like-minded believers so we can support one another and spur each other on. How many of you guys ran track or did some track events when you were growing up? Okay, a few of you. You, you kind of know what it's like to be on a track team. There's a lot of individual sports going on, a, little, a lot of individual events, but, but you're part of the track team. And, and the kind of track teams that I was a part of, we, we would just uh, we would run our race or we would do our event, but then we'd go over to the other guy's event or the other gal's event and we'd cheer them on. And we'd be there to, to comfort them if they lost or, or to encourage them you know, to, 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 to continue to, to, to work hard and dig in. And so really, you could liken our church to a track team, right? We, we're all doing our, we all, all have our own events, if you will, or we, our own competitions we're competing in, but we're there to encourage one another and build one another up. Chuck Swindoll said it well. He said, I, it takes more than just being theologically correct and spiritually enthusiastic to, to hang tough over the long haul. It takes the support of close companions. And then he says this, look around. Who's there to help when you get winded and weary? Who are you looking out for? 
So go ahead, look around. It's okay, not me, don't look at me, look around, it's okay. Your neighbor won't bite you, okay? But, but these, are, these are our people, right? Who, who's got your back? Who's, who's there to help you, to pick you up when you fall down? And, and who are you looking after? Who, who are you trying to encourage and support and motivate and, and, and uh, cheer on in their walk with Christ? So don't go it alone. Remember, you're not in this alone. And then lastly, number six, don't ever let up. Don't ever let up. Stick with it no matter what. Stick with it no matter what. Verse 16, however, let us keep living by the same standard to which we've attained. Literally, stay in line or stay in your lane is what he's saying there. Uh, I think this was Paul's way of, of, of saying that no matter how mature you are as a Christian, you must live up to the level of truth that you've received up to that point. We're all running on the same track, we're all on the same team, but we're all at different stages in our spiritual growth and development. And so no matter if you're a babe in Christ, you're a a newborn believer or a mature saint, God holds all of us equally accountable to put into practice as much biblical truth as we know and understand. I know some of you feel that are maybe newer to our church, you feel intimidated at times. You get in, you know, here's not so bad, but then you break off into a Bible study or a small group and people start sharing things and you're like, whoa, they know way more about the Bible than I do. And it makes you nervous and you're like, I'm not saying a thing because then everybody will know I don't know anything. Um, That's okay. That's where you're at in your relationship with Christ. That's not a bad thing. In fact, hopefully that inspires you. Like, hey man, these people really know a lot about the Bible. They seem really following hard after Christ. I want to be more like that. I want to know more. Well, you've come to the right kind of church. And so don't let that intimidate you. Let that inspire you. And, and, and the fact that Paul just says, hey, listen, you, you're, you are simply going to be held accountable to put into practice what you know right now. You may remember... Mark Twain's famous line, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. Right? It's the parts that we understand that you know. Those are the ones that you need to work on. Those are the ones you need to stay on track with and and hold to. I think it's sad that so many Christians, it seems, stay in a state of spiritual infancy their entire lives and they... They're okay with that. Drinking milk, not ever moving on to the meat of the word, and they never grow to maturity in Christ. And, and they're like the Jewish believers mentioned in Hebrews 5, verse 10, who never got past the ABCs. They were still drinking milk when they should have been eating meat. And they failed to become all that God intended them to be because they were lazy, they were undisciplined, they were sporadic in their pursuit of Christ-likeness. And so Paul's simply saying, listen, work hard, be consistent, keep up the pace as best you can, and whatever you do, don't ever quit. I'll give you a homework assignment. You ready? Write this down. It's your homework assignment. Find the song by Matt Papa called Keep Running. It's off of an album he did several years back called Look and Live. Matt Papa is one of the guys who collaborates with the Gettys and writes songs, but before he was collaborating with them, he wrote his own album called Look and Live, and there's a song called Keep Running, 
And it's, I think that's actually the subtitle. That's in the parentheses. It's something about uh, the pilgrim's progress. And it's just a really beautiful, powerful song that I've found to be very encouraging, very helpful, very stimulating uh, in times when I feel weary or maybe I'm being tempted by sin that I listen to that song and it just gets me back on track, gets my head back in the game. And it gives me encouragement, it gives me hope. I'd encourage you to find that song and listen to it. So let me ask you some questions as we close today. Are you becoming more like Jesus Christ each and every day? In what ways have you grown to be more like Christ since the day he saved you? What are some goals that you can set for this new year, right? Ways that you know areas in your life that, that are not like Jesus that need to become more like Jesus, ways you need to become more like Jesus. That, that's what I'm saying. Set that your goal. What are ways that I can become more like Jesus and think of some practical areas in your life that you know are not like Jesus that need to become like Jesus and set those in your sights for this new year. John Newton the author of the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, in his old age, when he could no longer see to read, someone, he heard someone read 1 Corinthians 15, 10, which says, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. That's Paul. This is what John Newton said in response. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. If this hasn't been your passionate pursuit, the passionate pursuit of your life, then guess what? You can start today. Because today is the first day of not just the new year, 2024, but this is the first day of the rest of your life. So let's get after it. By the grace of God, let's pray. Father, thank you for your clear instruction through the Apostle Paul about what our one thing should be, the one thing in life that we should think about the most, should talk about the most, should seek out the most, should pursue the most, and that's becoming as much like Jesus as humanly possible during our time here on this earth in anticipation of becoming perfectly conformed to him when we get to heaven. And so would you use each of us to encourage one another by our words, by our prayers, by our exhortations, by our examples, Father, that we would just stir one another up and spur one another on and that there would be lots of spiritual friendships developed in the life of this church where, where like-minded believers could just come alongside one another, develop a friendship, and help each other become more like Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.